in the Gospel of Mark. This is where we've been uh, working our way through. We're in chapter 6 today, so if you have your Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 6. We're, we're just going to take the first six verses. We have this really strange tradition at our church. Now, if you've been coming here for a while, you know this tradition. If not, this may seem a little strange to you. Uh, uh, we, just, we just work through books of the Bible, and so whenever uh, holidays hit, like Easter or Christmas, we generally just preach the next passage in the text. And so it's a rare thing for me to preach about the actual resurrection on Easter Sunday because rarely are we to that point in Scripture on Easter Sunday. We will preach about the resurrection. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get here. Um, but in, in, on Christmas Day, a lot of times, uh, or Christmas service, you know, we have to have a separate Christmas service uh, historically because we just preach whatever's next in the text. And so we're up to Mark 6. And you're like, why would you, why would you preach over Mark 6? It seems a little strange today. But that's where we're at in our series over Mark. You know, a, a lot of churches, the strategy is just entirely different. They will start a new sermon series on Easter Sunday. And so you want to start a new ser sermon series on the Easter Sunday that's four or five parts because that's what gets people to come back. And that's what every pastor's thinking. If I start a sermon series and it's really, it really hooks them good, maybe they'll come back next week and finish out that series. And so a lot of pastors will even purchase these sermon series on the internet. You can go in the, in the pastor world, there's lots of places you can go to buy you know, canned sermon series. And so I, I looked a couple up. I just kind of searched what was popular this year. Here's some of the titles I, I, I found. The, the, the number one on the list was, it was a, a sermon series about uh, Christian community entitled Uncomfortable. You want to be uncomfortable. That was the first one. And the second one was If Only I Had, and it was stuff you think you need more than Jesus. If only I had this, I think I'd be happy. Another sermon uh, series title, this one was funny. It was called uh, Silent Killers. And there really wasn't an explanation to it. So I, I, I kept thinking of silent but deadly. Like, that kind of silent killers? Uh, but it was, I think it was a sermon series about, like, secret sins that we deal with that kill us inside or something. And then uh, fourth on the list of the top series you could buy for your sermon series was uh, fake news. Stuff that's not in the Bible. And so literally, their sermon series was about stuff that's not in the Bible, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. And then the last one of the top five was reality, the battle between good and evil. And so this goes on and on and on. You can buy all of these different sermon series, and, and it's, uh, you know, meant to be captivating, and it's meant, again, to, to bait people, to get them to come back. And so kind of my, like, my, my, my vibe, this church's jam is just going through the Bible. I don't like feeling... I don't like feeling responsible for baiting you into paying attention. That's just not, that's not my jam. I don't like feeling that way. I don't, feel, I don't like feeling like I have to entertain you uh, and, and hook you into coming back to the journey. We're just Christians here. This gathering is catering to the believer. And when a believer gathers with the church, what we want to do is encourage one another with God's word. And we believe that the, the truth of God is here. And we believe that this is what we need to be equipped to know God. This is what we need 
to be equipped to understand his love for us and how we are to love him and how we are to live our daily lives. And so Christians are interested in that sort of thing. So when we gather, we really, we don't make it about fake news. We just make it about God's word. And so even though this is Easter Sunday, we're, we're going we're gonna to keep uh, going through the gospel of Mark. This is the this series is the Gospel of Mark series. It's about stuff that Mark said and wrote down. And we're in chapter 6 of that. Oh, man. The, you know, this time of year, because it's Easter, uh, pastors get all stressed out this time of year. And we, we tend to burn out because we're just trying to church so hard. If I can use church as a verb. We're just trying to, we're churching so hard, trying to get people to, to church along with us. You know, we got to get that big win. This is Easter Sunday. We got to get that big win. Our identity depends on it, right? If your church isn't growing, it's shrinking. And well, I don't know what I would do to, as a pastor. If I was a pastor of a shrinking church, oh no, I, I don't know what I would do. That's what pastors, that's what goes through our mind. We fear rejection. We take it personal. When someone comes to our church and they say, mm, I don't think I'll go back, we take that personal because we have this sinful desire to make this gathering just about us. We have this sinful desire, just like each and every one of us here, we have this sinful desire to be impressive and, and we want to captivate, captivate people and when people don't come back, we think, oh no, we didn't deliver. Cue the violins, right? The, 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 the pastor starts looking for another job. Easter goes bad, his self-esteem goes down. It's the same reason you hesitate to share your faith, right, in the workplace or with your family. You want everybody in your life to be a believer, but you hesitate to share your faith. Why? Because you fear rejection, just like the pastor. I just have to do the same thing you do on a platform. And so I have the same fear of rejection and things like that that you deal with in your personal life. Why am I bringing all of this up? Because in Mark chapter 6, Jesus deals with rejection. He goes to Nazareth, where he's from. He preaches the gospel message. He does miracles, and they reject him. He's dealing with rejection. So we're going to talk about the rejection of the gospel on Easter Sunday. <laughs> Are you even trying to be a good pastor right now? Your pastor's just not that good. We know. But we do enjoy the Bible studies. So I, I think it's a unique opportunity, though. It, I always tell our congregation, if you want to invite conviction into your life, if you truly desire to live a life of repentance, if you truly want to feel conviction, then examine yourself today. Whenever we're reading the text, examine your own life. That's how you get something out of church. It's often the case that people come to church and say, oh, I just didn't get anything out of it. Well, what, what mindset did you, go in, did you take with you into Scripture? What mindset did you take with you into, the, into that gathering? If you want to get something out of this, you can. But you got to ask the right questions to yourself. Have you rejected the gospel? Do you profess to have faith, but functionally you reject him? I think a lot of people fall into that category. If you do, today's a great opportunity to question yourself. Let's look at Mark chapter, chapter 6. Now, I'll tell you, I was going to take the first 13 verses, and I started writing this sermon, and I got six verses in. So we're going to take the first six verses of chapter 6, and that will be the entirety of the, the passage that we're 
covering today. This is Jesus rejected at Nazareth. So he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, so Jesus... He's back in his hometown of Nazareth. He's been traveling all over the Sea of Galilee. We've been studying that on the map. You remember my map? Imagination. This is the map of Israel. Up in the northern region, it's known as Galilee up there. And the middle of that upper region is the Sea of Galilee. Now towards the, the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, that's Capernaum. That's where Peter lives. That's where Jesus has been living too. It's kind of the base of operation of their ministry. He's done a lot of miracles there. He's healing people there. He's preaching the gospel there. They're tearing apart Peter's house, literally trying to get to Jesus. He teaches on the shoreline there where it's safe. He can, he can preach from a boat. And the, the massive crowds of tens and 15,000 of people will show up and they'll swarm the place. So he gets away from the crowd and he travels across the Sea of Galilee. He goes over to the Decapolis. That's a region. Decapolis is Deca is ten. Polis is a city and ten cities. There's ten cities on this other side. That's where the Gentiles are. He heals a man who's possessed with a legion of demons. He also calms a storm on the way over there. And then he travels back across to where the Jews are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee near uh, where his hometown is. He's traveling to, to Nazareth, and as you can see on the map there, Nazareth is just about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And on the way there, he heals a lady who has been bleeding for 12 years. She's been dealing with this discharge of blood. He heals her, and he, he also raises a girl from the dead. So this man named Jairus, he finds Jesus, like, my daughter is dying, she's sick, you got to get to her, they can't get to her in time. She dies, Jesus said, let's go anyway, let's keep going, come on. He gets to Jairus' daughter, and he, he raises her back to life. And so now he's moving on, heading home towards Nazareth, where his mom lives, where his younger half-brothers live, and his younger half-sisters live. Nazareth, it's this kind of rocky hillside, small town of about 500 people. We know a little something about small towns here, right? I mean, Marietta is not a big town, and maybe you grew up in a small town around Marietta that gets even smaller. Nazareth, it was just like 500 people. We're talking about a little village. I grew up in a little town about that same size. Monroe City, Indiana is where I grew up. It's where Amanda grew up. We, we both grew up in that same little small town. We went to preschool together. We've known each other our whole lives. I know everything about her family. She knows everything about my family. No secrets. Everything's known because we grew up in a small town where everybody knows everybody. We got one flashing traffic light. That's just to remind the coal truck drivers that they're passing through Monroe and not to kill anybody. 
right? There's, there's one gas station because the other one ran out of business. Since I've moved away, I haven't lived there for 20 years, uh, we have a Dollar General, of course. They pop up everywhere. That's it. That's it. But I haven't lived there for 20 years. But I guarantee you, if we traveled there today, you could pick any house at random in Monroe City, Indiana. Knock on the door, no matter who it was. You could say, do you know who Cody and Amanda Parman are? And I, I'd bet the farm they know us. Because we live in a small town. Amanda's related to half of them. So, like, I always, I always jokingly tell people, like, she had to marry me. I was the only option in Monroe City, <laughs> Indiana. That was it. It was me or, or, or you're single. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, so, like, yeah, 90% of the people there, I guarantee you they're going to know who we are, not because we're celebrities, just because we grew up in Monroe City, Indiana. And I, I bet you we could name almost 90% of the people who live in those homes. I, Amanda could for sure. But I know everything about that small town. You'd go there, things wouldn't be familiar to you, but everything is familiar to me. So when I take my kids there, they notice things uh, that are strange to them because they didn't grow up there in Monroe City, Indiana. One of the funnier moments that I had with the boys, I can't remember if it was Nolan or if it was Emmett. We're driving through Monroe. We get past the one flashing light. And we're in the neighborhood there traveling to Amanda's uh, parents' house. And there's this man walking down the road really aggressively. I mean, he was just going down the road like this. And he has a garden hoe in one hand. And he has a pistol in his holster around his waist walking real. And, and I think it was Nolan that was like, there's a lunatic walking down the road in Monroe. So strange to him. He had never seen that before. And they're just like, what is happening? But that was a really familiar sight to Amanda and I. We got a chuckle out of that. That's Jerry Jones. He's, he does look like a lunatic. I'll give you that. He is a little crazy, but he's actually a really nice guy. He umpires at the Little League. He umpired my Little League games growing up. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a nice dude. I went to school with his niece. She graduated with Amanda and I. Uh, the reason, though, he carries a garden hoe and a gun He's actually exercising. He walks religiously every day. He and his wife exercise. They speed walk around the neighborhood, and he carries weapons with him. Because one day, about 15 years ago, somebody's pit bull got loose, latched onto his wife's leg, and she sustained some minor injuries there. And so now he walks with a gun and with a garden hoe and looks like a lunatic. But he's a really nice guy. But he will kill your dog. <laughs> he will shoot it dead or beat it to death. Oh, man. But I just, I, we got such a kick out of that. That's, that's, that's kind of the, when Jesus comes back to Nazareth, he knows everybody. He knows everybody's story. He knows where they're from. He knows their families. He, he could list their families just like they know everything about him. They know all his brothers and his sisters and his mom. They know all, they know all about it. And so when he's at places like Capernaum, which is 25 miles northeast, right, and he's doing ministry there and he's preaching, they're not as familiar with him there. And All they know is that he's this amazing teacher and he's doing these miracles. So tens of thousands of people are showing up to see him. When he comes back to Nazareth, oh, we know Jesus. We know this guy. We're real familiar with him. That's just Jesus. He grew up here right down the road. He's not even the only Jesus here. 
That's a really common name in that day. I'm not the only Cody from Monroe City, City, Indiana. I went to school with another guy named Cody from Monroe City, Indiana. And, you know, Jesus was a really common name. That's just the Greek version of the name Joshua. It means God saves. And so to be named Jesus in that time, in that community, would have been as common as just another person named Josh. So they, he shows up. They're familiar with him. He's not turning any heads because, oh, Jesus, you know, yeah. Went to, I was in algebra with him. And, and Jesus gets there. He's not turning heads until he starts teaching. He starts teaching in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath it mentions there. He starts teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Wait a second. Where, where did he get these things? I mean, it's like, where did he get these abilities? He's, he's, such, he's a good speaker. He's teaching now. Like, this is the same kid. Like, I, I beat him up in grade school. It's the same. I, I sat across from, a, from him at the lunch table. I remember Jesus. Did he get trained? What, what is this wisdom given him, they ask? Did he get learned or something? That's what they're thinking. You know, how, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Wait a second. Did, did he just heal that person? Did, did that person come to him to get healed? And, and he just said a, a word and, he, and that person was healed? Like, I changed his diaper in the nursery. How is he healing people now? This is what's going through their head. Is, this, is not this the carpenter? I used to build houses with Jesus growing up. We worked on the same projects. We, we shared a bologna sandwich at lunch. We know each other. Like, is this not the carpenter? Everybody knows Jesus is a carpenter. Actually, we don't. I don't want to make your mind blow right now, but we don't know that Jesus was a carpenter. That word was used in all kinds of different ways. If you look at the definition of that Greek word, I'm sorry if this hurts your feelings, but when you look at the Greek word, it can describe just a construction worker in general. It can, it can, if you were a stonemason, well, it was the same word for carpenter. And so he could have been a stonemason, he could have been a construction worker, he could have been a carpenter. He, just, he worked with his hands. That's what it's really teaching us or telling us. Um, so carpenter works. It is a very uh, good possibility, but we don't know precisely what exact profession he was good at. I, I like to think that he was a carpenter. It, it makes sense and it could work, but the Greek word is a little more vague than that. But then Mark wants us to see something a little more uh, specific. He wants us to see the contempt that they have in their voice, that they have on their minds. They say, is this not the son of Mary? Now, to us, oh yeah, well, Mary's his mom. Why would you not refer to him as the son of Mary? Well, that's a cultural difference uh, between us and them. In that day and in that time, if you wanted to respectfully refer to someone, you would refer to them as the son of their father or as the daughter of their father. That was just how it worked in their time and in their culture. And so if you referred to someone as the son of Mary or the son of their mother, that would, that would be a little strange to the ears. There's a little contempt there. Isn't that the son of Mary? Of course, we remember the virgin birth at Christmas time. We study it every year. Well, some churches do. I just mentioned that we didn't do that as much here. But we think about Christmas time, the virgin birth, the scandalous events that surrounded the virgin birth. Oh, yeah, that's, that's Mary's boy. 
not to be confused with Joseph's boys or Joseph's daughters. That's, that's Mary's boy. Uh, that's, you remember what happened with them, right? She was pregnant before they got married. It was a little scandalous. It's, it's, it's not Joseph's kid. That's so small town, isn't it? Right? The rumor mill in a small town and how you know, we, we talk behind each other's backs and everybody knows the gossip about everyone. That's so small town. Like that little town of 500 people, we know everything. Nothing's hidden there. And Marietta in this area, it's just, it's just like that. I mean, come on. We know everything about everybody. There's, there's generally no secrets here. We might think they are sometimes, but they're not. They know everything about Jesus. They even know, they list the names of his brothers, his younger half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. You know those guys. Well, actually, we are familiar with a couple of those. James, we know James. He's not a believer at this point in time. He kind of thinks Jesus is out of his mind. We read that in the previous chapter. But he will go on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He will go on to write the book of James, right? Then there's Joseph. We don't know anything about Joseph. Then there's Judas. We actually know Judas. A really common name, Judas. Everybody was named Judas in that day. He went on to write a book of the Bible, but it's not called the book of Judas. It's called the book of Jude. Jude was also Jesus' younger half-brother. He wrote the book of Jude there before Revelation. And why is it not called the book of Judas? Well, that's because if you were a Christian in the first century, uh, just like Christians now, we typically don't, we, we don't name our kids Judas uh, because of the disciple Judas who betrays Jesus. Well, in that day, if your name was Judas and you were a Christian, well, Judas was, not, we don't want to be confused with that Judas. I'll just go by Jude. Just call me Jude. Like every Christian who was named Judas actually changed their name to Jude. Just call me Judy. Judy's fine. I'll take Judy. So he wrote the book of the Bible and called it Jude. It's known as Jude. And not to be confused with the disciple who betrayed Jesus. But they knew everything about him. And they took offense at him. They were so familiar with Jesus they took offense at him. They didn't disagree with what he was teaching, though they were astonished by it. They weren't disagreeing with it. They weren't denying that miracles were being done. They were acknowledging it. They just weren't impressed because they were too familiar with Jesus. There's a saying in our day for this, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. It's a saying in our time. Familiarity breeds contempt. When we learn a lot about someone, we can tend to lose respect for them because we're too familiar with them. This is the attitude of the people of Nazareth who grew up with Jesus. They just think, man, is the anticipated Messiah, people are saying this, this could be the Messiah. That's Jesus. We were in third grade together. We had Mrs. Ernie. I know him. It's, he can't be, he's just too, he's too much like us. He's too small town. He can't be the Messiah. We take that same logic into a lot of things that we do. And so like you think of a, a church when they want to hire a new pastor. Do they hire from, from within? Rarely ever. They know everybody too well. They know all the dirt on everybody. They want to hire someone they don't know. They want to hire someone that the only thing they know about them is really what's on that piece of paper. It can look really impressive. The less I know, the better. I can still be impressed with you. 
We do this in the secular world too, right? When a, when a company goes out to hire a management position or something like that, a lot of times they don't hire from within. They want to get hire externally because they can be oppressed, impressed with that which they don't know, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, just like we have that saying in our day, there was a saying that already existed in Jesus' day. Jesus didn't come up with this saying. He just used it and applied it to his situation. It's this, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his own household. That was a, a common saying of that day. And Jesus said, holds true. Here I am in Nazareth. And uh, I'm not receiving the same honor I was in Capernaum. There's something different here. And as a result, we're told he could do no mighty work there. Oh, be careful with that verse. Got some questions. He could do no mighty work there. They didn't honor him. So what's that mean? Is this verse teaching that because of their lack of faith in Nazareth, he was weaker or couldn't do as many miracles or do a miracle. Like he walked into Nazareth and, and, and their, faith, their faith was so weak or so non-existent that Jesus was walking around like, can't move, need people's faith. Is that what was happening? Of course not. Of course not. We know that from scripture. Now a lot of, a lot of preachers will preach it that way. And they will try to teach you that if you want God to do amazing things in your life, then you need to provide the faith that fuels his miracles. That's essentially what they are teaching. And the stronger the faith you have, the more faith you can muster up, the mightier the work of God can be in your life and the lives of those around you. And that is entirely false. God is sovereign. He doesn't need anything. He's the creator. You need your faith. They treat, they, they, they confuse the power of God with like how Santa's sleigh operates. You remember the movie Elf, right? We love the movie Elf. I don't know why my mind's on Christmas Day. The, the, the movie Elf, right? The, the sleigh, oh man, belief in Santa's down. We got to get a jet engine for the sleigh. What is it called? The Kringle 2000 or something. I don't know what the name of the jet is. But they get the jet, and that's what fuels the sleigh. We love that movie. And, oh, no, towards the end of the movie, the, the jet engine breaks off. The sleigh is going to crash. There's not enough magic. I know the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing all, loud for all to hear. And everybody starts singing Christmas songs, and all of a sudden that sleigh's got enough magic to take off and flies through the sky, and Christmas is saved. That's how Santa's sleigh works. But that is not how Jesus works. That is not how the Holy Spirit works. Jesus wasn't walking around weak. He didn't suddenly lose his power. You know, uh, that's what's bad about, you'll hear me criticize the word of faith movement. They want to emphasize your word of faith and how it can unleash the power of God. And you can have this word and speak these things into existence in the sense that you unlock God's power and he can begin to do things that he previously was unable to do because your lack of faith or non-existent faith limited him. And functionally, they are teaching you to have faith in your faith. 
And if you have faith in your faith, I'm going to tell you right now, you are completely void of the power of God. There is no power in your faith apart from God. John Owen put it like this. He's one of those old dead theologians that manages to say it so quickly and with precision. He says, we have no power from God unless we live under the persuasion that we have none of our own. If the value of your faith rests on your shoulders, it's powerless. If the value of your faith is rooted in who Christ is, anything's possible with God. He is all-powerful. So did their lack of faith or non-existent faith prevent Jesus from doing a miracle there? No. And we know this for several reasons. We know this because he just healed a man in the previous paragraph who had no faith. He was in Gentile country, remember? And the Decapolis, those ten cities. He's over there, and this man is, is, is filled with legion, which is a legion of demons, thousands of demons. He doesn't know who Jesus is. None of the Gentiles know who Jesus is. Jesus heals that man. He didn't ask to be healed. He wasn't even part of the conversation until he was healed. Jesus was talking directly to the demons. We know that in, in the previous paragraph. We, all, we can look at all over scripture. We know that the man at Bethsaida, uh, or Bethsaida he, he was at the pool of Bethsaida, and he was a lame man, and he didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus heals that lame man, and even after he was healed, he still wasn't sure who Jesus was. We know the blind man in John chapter 9, so you can read John 5, read about that lame man. You can read John 9, talk about the blind man. That blind man had no faith in Jesus. Jesus healed him anyway. He didn't ask to be healed. The man did not have faith, and it had no bearing on Jesus' ability to do a miracle. Because he's God, he's sovereign. Of course not. So what does Mark mean? In Scripture, we see that sometimes people have faith, and they go to Jesus, and they are healed. Sometimes we see that people have no faith. Jesus goes to them and heals them. We see both things happening in Scripture. But what Mark is saying, he could do no mighty work there. It wasn't that he couldn't do a miracle. Because we know in the rest of the sentence that we just read, it said that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He didn't do a mighty work in the sense that people weren't showing up in droves because they were too familiar with Jesus. That's what Mark means. People didn't come out of the woodwork to, to see and find out who Jesus was. They already knew all about Jesus and his family because they were so familiar with him. And so the people who did show up, Jesus would heal. He healed a few sick people, it says. But they weren't coming in the hundreds and thousands there in Nazareth because they were just too familiar. Jesus marveled at their unbelief, it says. He marveled at it. I mean, think about this. He went to Nazareth. He preached the gospel. They were astonished at his teaching. He does miracles there. He heals sick people that validated the, the message that he preached. That's the purpose of miracles, we remember. They're called signs. And so they marvel at his message. They marvel at the, at the miracles. But yet they still reject him because they were too familiar with just another, another Nazareth boy. So he did no mighty work there. 
And so he was astonished at that unbelief. You know, when it comes to astonishment, we see people in Scripture marveling. Now, normally the marveling or the astonishment is in response to who Jesus is. Wow, he preaches with so much authority. Wow, he healed a lame person. The astonishment is always directed towards Jesus. But in this moment, it's different, right? Jesus is the one that's astonished. He's marveling at their unbelief. He's amazed that they don't believe. There's only one other place that Jesus is amazed. He's, right here, he's amazed at their unbelief. He's amazed in Matthew chapter 8 at someone's belief. So here he's astonished that they don't believe. In Matthew 8, he's astonished that they do believe. And in Matthew 8, it's an entirely different circumstance. Nazareth, they're completely familiar with Jesus. They grew up Jew. And so in Matthew 8, he encounters a centurion soldier, someone who grew up a Gentile, someone who was not familiar with the Torah, the Old Testament, and the law, and Moses. But yet he knew enough about Jesus to go to him for help. He comes to Jesus. He says, I have a soldier that's paralyzed. He needs heal healed. I hear you can heal people. You can, you can do this. Would you please heal this soldier of mine? And Jesus says, yeah, let, let's go to him. And then the centurion does something amazing. He says, hey, I know how authority works. I recognize that you have authority. I know how authority works. I'm a centurion soldier. I understand a chain of command. When I say, do this, the people under my command do it. That's how authority works. I believe you have a similar type of authority that goes way beyond the authority that I have. You could just say, this man is healed, and he'll be healed. And so Jesus healed that man that day without even going to him. That man who was healed, didn't ask to be healed, didn't go to Jesus either. And, and so Jesus looks at that centurion soldier, and then, he, and then he turns to his disciples and he says, it says that he marveled. He said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So he marveled at the Jews who didn't have faith, and he marveled at the Gentile who did have faith. I think today's a great passage to study on Easter Sunday. I think it's a perfect passage to think about, to examine our hearts with today. Let me tell you why. Churches are having the best attended Sunday they've had in two years right now. This will be one of ours for sure. Churches all over the planet Earth are having their best attended Sunday. The pastors have been longing for this day. We don't have to follow rules and regulations and people are generally healthy and the hospitals aren't full of COVID patients and things like that. People are coming out in their Sunday best. Pastor got his tie out of the sock drawer. Everything's firing on all cylinders. Family's all together. You got your outing planned. I got... I got family dinner right after this. It's going to be great. And all across the globe, people are, are back to those familiar Easter traditions. But the danger is it can become so overly familiar to us. The same song and dance of this time of year. That these celebrations and these things that we do can have no real bearing on our faith at all. We've just gone through the motions. We're firing on all cylinders today because, well, we just we're supposed to, right? We're just supposed to. And so here's the reality. Attendance will be up today across the planet Earth, and next week it'll be down again. 
that's just, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And so you, you got to tell your pastor friend, hey, next week when attendance is down, that's just the way it is, dude. That's just what happens. Somebody went and heard your sermon, and they weren't impressed by you, and they're not coming back, and, and they're really, they're not believers. And that's just how it works, man. And so people are, people are coming out in droves all over the planet Earth, but yet in so many places there's no mighty work of God in their life at all. It's just Easter. You know, it's astonishing how many people can come to church on a Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, and hear the gospel preached and still not believe. But it's also astonishing that people can come to church each and every Sunday and tie into a community of believers and serve faithfully and keep asking questions and welcoming conviction. And over time, progressively, they can change in such drastic ways. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Sometimes it takes time. So the journey, we got a little different vibe here. It's, it's a little strange to a lot of people, but I, I don't want people to overlook the truth in Scripture and to overlook the gospel message because they're participating and, you know, they're, they're churching really hard on Easter, that they're churching so hard they miss the gospel. I don't want that to happen. And so really, on Easter Sunday, I think it's especially important to do church like you do every single Sunday. Because sometimes people, you know, everyone makes it a point to come on Easter Sunday, and on that Sunday, man, there's a big production the cantata's fired up, man, and, and they got every, everything's looking great and everything's going, and, and they just see the show. The production value's real high. I could tell you right now, like aside from this tie that I'll ne I won't wear till next Easter, everything will be exactly the same. We'll read the same catechism. I'll mention the tithe box. Sometimes I forget, actually, about half the time. Uh, the band will be up here. Sometimes it's an acoustic set. Some, you know, we'll, we'll sing about Scripture. We'll, we'll read Scripture on the screen together. We'll continue. And uh, Mark, you know what I'm going to preach next week? I'm going to start at verse 7. That's, that's next week. And we're going to go probably through like 13 or something, unless I can't get there. And there will be a, a shorter time together. It's, it, that, that is the routine that we follow here. And it's really no different. Every Sunday, Sunday to Sunday. And you think, well, wait a second. Can't, if we just get part of, isn't that just routine on, on a different scale? Like the routine of Easter can cause us to maybe overlook the gospel, but can't the routine of each and every Sunday cause us to miss something too? If you let it. Yeah, we take communion every single Sunday. That can be entirely routine and meaningless if you let it. But each and every Sunday, I'm going to challenge you to really think about it. I'm going to challenge you to invite conviction, invite repentance, to actively participate with your mind, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to be challenged, and this can be something that changes your life drastically, bigger than anything else can change your life. And so we're going to go into a time of communion right now in which we remember the gospel. The gospel that was rejected by some and accepted by others. When we pass this, this bread and this juice, what that bread means, here's what it means. We believe God is the judge. We believe we're going to stand before him at the end of time. All will be resurrected. All will be resurrected. 
And so we'll stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. And we're either going to be judged on our performance or we're going to be judged on the performance of Jesus. And so when you say you're a Christian, when you stand before God, we believe that we are being judged based on the performance of Jesus. We don't think we tipped the scales in our favor. We don't think we did enough good things to be loved by God. That's not the gospel. We don't believe that we unlocked or unleashed the power of God enough to be loved by him or to be saved by him or to get to go to heaven. We don't believe that. Christians believe that we are judged based on the performance of Jesus. And so when we're judged by God, he sees the sinlessness of Christ. And so we take that bread each and every, every week to remember, I am seen as sinless before God, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I have faith in his sinlessness. I have faith in his power, not mine. We take that juice to remember that our sins have been atoned for. It's not that my sins haven't been punished or won't be punished. It's that as a Christian, I believe Jesus took the penalty that I deserved. I deserve to be punished because I am not perfect. The standard is God. If you don't live up to that standard, you're not perfect. And all your sins need punished. And the punishment, the wages of sin is death, as it says. But I believe that, that I take that juice and I remember his blood shed on the cross is what atoned for my sins. And so it's, this, it's what's called the great exchange. He gets my penalty and I get his I get what he deserved. He deserved eternal perfection, holiness, and heaven. I get that because of Jesus. So if that's where your trust and that's where your hope is today, take communion. Find the peace that's there. Find the peace that's there. As a pastor, I don't have to live and die based on my performance because it's not about my performance. You don't have to go up and down and up and down because your performance sometimes is, is better than others. At the end of the day, it just matters what God thinks about you. And because of Christ, he thinks we are sinless. He knows we are. We've been given the sinlessness, the, the righteousness of Christ. And our sins have been paid for on the cross. So if, if your trust is not there, or maybe you're just somewhere on that spectrum that you're just not, I, I, okay. You got, you got my attention, but I'm just not. Don't take communion. If you don't believe, don't take communion. We don't, we don't criticize people who don't take communion. I'm encouraged by people who let the plate pass because they're not sure yet, because they're really actively thinking and considering over the course of time. We're just going to keep going through, Mark. If you want to learn more about Jesus, come back next week. I want to teach you more. But we're always going to come back to that truth of the gospel through communion. So let's stand together, and we'll, we'll sing together. I want to say a prayer as the praise band gets ready, and then we'll pass that plate, and we'll take it together simultaneously. Lord, I thank you for this time together in your word. It, it seemed a little strange at first when I came upon this passage in Mark 6 to be talking about the rejection of, of your ministry in Nazareth, but Lord, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, how perfect, because it's so often the case that we just grow so overly familiar with the message of the Bible and with doing a church that we just completely overlook the miracle of our salvation, that you could love us in our imperfections, that you could love us 
knowing the sin that we have in our lives, knowing the ways that we fall short, you provided a way to love us and to make us new again and whole again and sinless and to be with you for eternity. Lord, help us to refocus our hearts and minds on that today, that it would not just be another day, not just be another Easter, but a time in which we are renewed and refreshed by your gospel. Bless us, Lord, during this time of communion. In your name, Jesus.